Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. Requests have been made to get this guy to act his age. Well, hell, he can't even act his own IQ. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I am your host, Brian Levine, coming to you from an empty nest in lovely Concord, North Carolina. So, in uh, tonight's show, in Pipe Parts, I got a bit of history. Yeah, there was some history found on some tobacco going back 12,000 years, so we'll talk about that in Pipe Parts. Uh, My guest tonight is pipe maker Micah Redmond, and then we will have the uh, world-famous music mailbag and rant, all that coming up on on a Tuesday night episode of the Pipes Magazine radio show. Uh, So uh, tomorrow I'm hopping on an airplane and heading to Boulder, Colorado for the Smoker Friendly Conference. Uh, I'll be out in Boulder for three days. And uh, Smoker Friendly, again, is a group of primarily uh, the, the discount tobacco outlets. Some of them have a good selection of, uh, of mass market and some premium pipe tobaccos and the occasional humidor. So if you're in a town and you happen to be swinging by, check in the Smoker Friendly and see what they have for you. Uh, the more pipe smokers we get going in Smoker Friendly style stores, the more uh, pipe tobacco we'll see at those Smoker Friendly style stores. Uh, today is my only full day at home this week because uh, this past weekend we emptied the nest. And uh, here's how it went. On Friday, we uh, loaded up two cars in the morning and drove four hours to Greenville, North Carolina to drop off my daughter for her second year of college at East Carolina University. So if you watch the football games, there's a band that plays uh, there's a band that plays, and then in between that, the little football players do their thing. Uh, you'll be able to see her, hopefully, maybe. And, uh, of course, a little scary for us, but, uh, hey, this new continuous glucose monitor that we've got her hooked up on, I can go online and uh, or on an app and get her blood sugar reading anytime. Uh, then Saturday, we drove back home after leaving her, and on Sunday afternoon, packed up the car and went to... Uh, packed up two cars and then drove to Wilmington, North Carolina and dropped off our son for uh, what will probably be his last move out of here. Uh, anyway, he's starting a master's program at UNC Wilmington. And then we turned around. We had uh, dinner last night with uh, Sykes Wilford from Smoking Pipes and turned around and drove back last night, got home late, and I've worked all day and packed and leaving again tomorrow. So... Uh, not much time to really enjoy the empty nest, but it is uh, kind of quiet around here, and <laughs> we've been doing some cleaning in rooms that have been occupied by young people for the last couple of months, and <laughs> trash cans full already, and it's only the beginning of the week. All right, let's get the show rolling. We'll get the everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you to the Sutliff Tobacco Company, and here we go. I'm Jeremy Reeves, head blender of Cornell & Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. Since 1990, Cornell & Deal has been producing high-quality pipe tobacco 
expertly blended by hand using time-honored methods, unique recipes, and no small amount of innovation. One example of such innovation is our bestseller, Autumn Evening. We start with whole leaf red Virginia and strip the stems by hand. The tobacco is then cut into ribbons and cooked for two days according to our unique recipe to create our special red Virginia Cavendish. Then we infuse the tobacco while it's still hot with our secret flavoring to achieve the sublime sweetness, deep flavor, and delightful aroma that makes Autumn Evening so well-loved by our loyal customers and everyone around them as they enjoy this very special blend. Cornell & Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. It's a labor of love. Contact your local or online retailer for information. Do you need a reliable source for ordering pipes and tobacco? Do you find it difficult to get your favorite blends outside of the U.S.? Fournoggins.com stocks all of your favorite pipes and tobaccos and ships all over the world. All forms of payment are accepted and orders are processed the same day. There are no worries when ordering from Fournoggins.com. Fournoggins.com is your source for all of your pipes and tobacco needs. We ship in the U.S. and international with no worries. Fournoggins.com for all of your pipes and tobacco needs. Welcome back. All right, in just a few minutes, Micah Redman will be with us in uh, Pipe Parts, though. Uh, Russ Hicks sent me an email link to an article, and it's from the 75th Air Base Wing Public Affairs. So this is uh, probably not some top governmental secrets. But anyway, here's what it says. Uh, Utah Test and Training Range, Utah. Recently, a team of archaeologists working on the Utah Test and Training Range under the direction of the Hill Air Force Base Cultural Resource Program discovered a 12,300-year-old hearth, an archaeological feature and artifacts which tell the story of North America's earliest inhabitants and of a very different landscape from that of today. Uh, the hearth, as I see in a picture, is actually looks like what was... Uh, might have been where they cooked their uh, cooked their food. Anyway, it goes on to say, uh, traveling through Utah's West Desert and the Great Basin region today, the desolate landscape stretches uh, stretch for miles in every direction, making it difficult to imagine lush, thriving wetlands. However, this discovery further confirms that the region was once a vast expanse of rivers, streams, and marshes inhabited by many varieties of plants and animals. Additionally, the discovery proves that people have had a long presence in the area. In compliance with Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act, the Air Force for years has worked very closely with the Utah State Historic Preservation Office to explore, discover, and preserve historical and cultural artifacts on the UTTR. Uh, Anaya Kitterman, Hill Air Force Base Archaeologist and Cultural Resource Manager, said that the preservation efforts are accomplished by proactively doing archaeological surveys in areas not previously visited. We work to focus these surveys on areas which have a higher potential for archaeological resources, she said. This is based on previous surveys, a probability model developed to identify those areas with the most likelihood of archaeological resources based on past environments and previous research. Uh, she continued... Hill Air Force Base contracted Far Western Anthropological Research Group for the 2015 summer field survey season to survey several thousand acres which were chosen 
on the above criteria in the hearth site, which was, uh, was one of many sites where numerous artifacts were found. It is, however, by far the most significant. Uh, so first of all, let me just say, I think it's cool that the Air Force is doing stuff like that. Uh, sitting out in that desert during the summertime is not exactly your uh, leisurely casual work. It gets hot out there. Uh, going forward, it says, In the first week, we've collected over 60 items around the feature, she said. We found tools, charcoal, pieces of duck and goose bones, tooling flakes, very unique, in fact, something like this has never been found in North America before. The unique circumstances and variables surrounding this recent discovery took thousands of years to come together. Erosion by wind and water uncovered the artifacts after more than 12,000 years. Then trained archaeologists, combining years of local research, focused on this exact area looking for precisely this kind of feature and artifacts. According to Craig Young, Far Western Senior Geoarchaeologist, there's a word, uh, the current excavation's location was once a wetland where people and animals gathered. So there you go, we were all underwater back then. Uh, the old riverbed in Utah's West Desert is unique because it was a highly productive area for a confined period of time from the recession of Lake Bonneville up until 8,500 years ago, approximately. Uh, there is a window of time that this area was an oasis marshland, and people came to use this patch as the rest of this part of the Great, Bra Great Basin was drying out. Uh, Lake Bonneville, the Bonneville Salt Flats, famous for uh, land speed records. Uh, going on, it says, During their research, Young and his teammates used geological features to reconstruct events and explain patterns over thousands of years. Uh, left behind in the Paleo Delta, an ancient river delta, are layers of organic marsh and decomposed plant life that was buried. We call them black mats. These mats are now a layer of soil in this area exposed in spots due to erosion. Researchers all along this delta are interested in black mats because they can be radiocarbon dated. They contain plant species, shell species, and fish species, which give us a window into that environment at time. Uh, Darren Duke, Far Western senior archaeologist and lead for the current project, who has worked with the Air Force for 15 years, was excited about the recently discovered hearth and, tells, and the story it tells. Uh, the reason we want to find features is because we can directly date them, he said. This infers the artifacts are of a certain age, otherwise it's not clear. Uh, the significance of the find helped the archaeologists determine that people occupied the region many thousand years ago. Then there are questions about the significance of these people, Duke said. They really are the first occupants of the Great Basin that we can demonstrate. If we went from the earliest accepted date of the Americas, approximately 13,400 years ago, people seem to have dispersed all across the continent within a short 500-year time span. According to Duke, the first few people inhabiting the area moved around a lot. We do know that by the time of 13,000 years ago, 400 years after people are in North, North America, we get evidence of people in this area and the Great Basin, he said. The people then seem to be pretty transitory. They might have seen megafauna, large animals, and possibly 
were hunting mammoths and giant forms of bison. Environmentally, the Great Basin has been mostly dry for about 9,000 to 10,000 years, according to Duke, until the dry period above. Uh, changing geological conditions have led to people inhabiting the area. The Great Basin is now arid, but at that time it was maybe 10 to 15 degrees cooler on average. A much cooler environment, he said, this is why there were rivers, lakes, and marshy wetland ecosystems. These people had a unique landscape for thousands of years. Towards the end of the period, for people who had the run of North America, things were drying up and this could have been one of the last places they decided to make use of. Ah, here's where it gets fun for us. Other significant items were found around the hearth. We now know we had something unusual and important, which was, the, which was evidence of people, said Duke. The main thing of significance is we found tobacco seeds. What makes this interesting is there's no direct evidence of anybody using tobacco past 3,000 years ago, and this was 12,000 plus years ago. It's also a New World plant, not a plant from the other side of the world, so obviously that raises a lot of questions. Uh, the article goes on a little bit further, but there you go. Tobacco, 12,000 years ago, and uh, used in Utah, of all places. A little history for you. Uh, if you want to go find the article, you can search uh, Archaeologists Discover Proof of Wetlands Ancient Life on the Utah Test and Training Range. All right, in just a minute, Micah Redmond. This is Internet Radio. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. If you're looking for quality... If you're looking for a variety, and if you're looking for someone with a reputation for nothing but the best, you're looking for CupOfJoes.com. CupOfJoes.com has hundreds of pipes to choose from and thousands of different pipe tobaccos. CupOfJoes.com is also your one-stop shop for Peterson Pipes, their exclusive line of Peterson Kelly Pipes. Check out their remodeled website at CupOfJoes.com, and be sure to like them on Facebook, CupOfJoes.com. Quality products at extraordinary prices. Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show, and we're finally getting back to a pipe maker. It's been, God, I, I can't remember how many weeks it's been, but uh, excited to have with us Michael Redman, who is a pipe maker. I'm trying to think, what, it's been two or three years since we first met, and anyway, uh, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show, Micah Redman. Thanks for having me. All right, so... Um, Let's go back and learn all about you. Uh, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, I'm a sort of quintessential Navy brat. Uh, both my parents were in the Navy. And uh, we uh, landed in Jacksonville, Florida back when I was real young and ended up staying there. Um, so I lived there um, most of my life until a little over a year ago uh, when I moved to Nashville, Tennessee. And I mean, what was life like growing up in Jacksonville? I mean, did did you get to spend a lot of time going to the beaches and hanging out? 
Yeah, so it's, I mean, Jacksonville's kind of a, a typical Florida town. There's lots of uh, uh, water, rivers, and beaches, and everybody likes to hang out there. Lots of uh, lots of sunburns when I was young. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a pretty big city, but it's also got kind of a, a small-town vibe to it as well. So kind of your typical, uh, you know, American wholesome upbringing. Nothing too terribly exciting. Jacksonville is actually the largest city in the United States land-wise. That's right. Okay, good. You knew that. Uh, it's, yeah. all, it's also the same county. That so. was yes, yeah. They, they incorporated the county back in the uh, the sixties, and then we got our sole uh, our sole bragging rights versus other cities. Yeah. And it's one of the few towns in Florida that's not overrun by uh, tourists and snowbirds. That's true. That's true. Which, uh, which is a nice thing. And if you're ever driving through Florida Monday through Friday and you're, and you're coming through Jacksonville, the Anheuser-Busch Brewery's got a great tour and you get free samples at the end. Yes, sir. See, I know all about where you grew up. Uh, so, yeah, I can tell uh, so, what'd you what'd you want to be when you grew up? Oh gosh, that that changed from week to week. Um, at one point, I was uh, I was watching a lot of uh, Jacques Cousteau and decided I wanted to be a marine biologist. Um, and then I realized that like diving down to the bottom of the ocean is terrifying. So you know, <laughs> I moved on to uh, to something else. Um, the the one consistent I guess is something something creative. Uh, both my parents were creative. My dad was always drawing and painting when I was a kid. My mom uh, spent a lot of time playing in the uh, concert marching bands when she was younger. Yay. My sister was in was in band. Um, so I when I was little I, I drew a lot, and then as I got older I decided that. Rock and roll was super cool, so I started playing guitar and played in a few bands with friends over the years. Um, got into painting, uh, actually spent some time in college uh, getting some actual arts education. And uh, so as I got older, I just kind of, I worked a lot of different jobs doing a lot of different things and then just kind of decided that I wanted to, to do something that was creative. What that was going to be, I didn't know. But uh, that was kind of what I had my heart set on. So, how many years ago did uh, did pipe smoking come into your life? Um, gosh, it's been it's been a little while now. It's probably uh, I think it's probably 2008 sometime. Um, I was actually I was playing in a, a band, and the drummer in my band uh, got a pipe. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. It's interesting. So I went to a local Edwards um, and and bought a pipe and started smoking it. And did that for probably like six months or so. And then as I was poking around online, looking at like handmade pipes in particular, um, sort of creative bug caught me. And I was like, you know, I think I'm going to try to make some pipes. Um, so it pretty quickly... I got into pipe making after I started smoking. I, I I didn't even really know how to smoke a pipe before I started trying to make them. Um, 
they kind of both helped each other along a little bit, and I learned learned both. So. Now, was the pipe the first thing that you smoked, or had you tried cigars or anything else before that? Um, no, I hadn't, other than, you know, sneaking cigarettes on the playground when I was, you know, 16. Um, hadn't, hadn't gotten into cigars really. I'd smoked some cigars, uh, but nothing, nothing serious. So, uh, pipes were kind of my introduction to sort of quality tobaccos. And I'm I'm kind of interested because coming from not smoking much at all to trying a pipe, what? What do you think it was that really drew you into the pipe? Um, initially, uh, the pipe itself was what drew me to it. I was, I was much more interested in the pipe as a sort of functional aesthetic object. Um, and then, like, the sort of history of tobacco in the United States and everything was really appealing to me as well. And of course, it doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense to me at the time to just buy pipes and not smoke them. So, um, as I started to smoke them, I sort of discovered this wonderful new world of uh, of tobacco that I hadn't really been aware of before. And does it? I, was it the uh, was it the shape of the pipe or the or the colors that kind of drew you in? Um, prim- primarily the, the shape, um, and that's, that's changed a lot for me over the years, like the, the shapes I like now versus what was interesting, interesting to me when I first got into pipes has changed a lot. Um, but I, uh, that, that first trip to a pipe shop for me, I saw some pipes that were very clearly handmade and that, uh, that was just really interesting to me, um, uh, because I could tell that someone had had made that with their hands, and it was a functional, beautiful object, and that that appealed to me um, on a lot of levels. Being somebody who worked with my hands and and been creative for a lot of years, um, but always sort of non-functional items, uh, the the sort of joining of those things um, was intriguing to me, and that kind of spurred on my research. And then as I started to to look around online and look at pipe shops, I I started to see um, just what were basically smokable pieces of art, and then I was then I was really hooked because it was it wasn't just a sort of craft functional object at that point. There was a level of artistry um, that I found uh, very appealing, and and was something that I wanted to uh, definitely uh, spend more time uh, learning about. And experiencing. So you went from that Edwards pipe to uh, starting to try to make your own? Yeah, pretty quickly. Um, I think I might have purchased another pipe or two before um, I, st- I tried to make them, um, but there weren't many. I think I just had one or two. Um, and I did the, the, the kind of typical beginner pipe maker thing is I, I bought the Pimo book and got some pipe kits and uh, made some terrible, terrible pipes. <laughs> um, but it, but it was fun. And I was just basically, I didn't have any, any tools in my own shop. So I was trying to make them with my, my dad's drill press in his garage and, and, you know, with a couple of 
couple of tools here and there, and it, uh, it didn't didn't really go well. But I was I was determined to uh, kind of keep at it. I figured if I was persistent enough, eventually it would be uh, halfway decent looking. How did you uh, start out with tobacco? Did you just pick out one that smelled good and then start learning your way around? Um, yes. So at that Edwards, I bought some of their house blends. And uh, I think I also picked up a tin of, uh, I don't remember what it was, but it was a, a Mac Baron blend. Um, but then I, I quickly, like, got on the internet, having sort of grown up with computers, um, I started digging in to a lot of different websites on the internet, So, and then I started buying a lot of stuff. I had no idea there were so many pipe tobacco bins available, uh, then I started to see all the stuff online and started basically just buying a different, like, I didn't buy two tins of the same thing for a long time, I'd just buy a bunch of different blends and tried to figure out what I liked, what I didn't like, what sort of blends I liked. Um, and there were there were some hits, there were some misses, um, but I kind of, and there's still so, so many that I haven't tried. Um, but I, I kind of figured out a little bit more what I, what I was looking for and then started to kind of uh, target specific things from there. What did you do with the tobaccos that were misses? I mean, from the first bowl, did you hate them and plug all the way through them, or did you just try them and say, nope, that's it? I would I would typically like keep on uh, plugging through them because I uh, I've experienced this thing this with other things in my life. You know, the first time I had uh, a sip of beer, I didn't think it was very good either, or the first time I had coffee, I didn't think it was very good. So I figured the first um, first impression maybe wasn't the best thing to base it off of. So I would and it's, and I quickly started to get more pipes. So I would try them in different pipes, and I would I would usually. Some, smoke the whole pouch or tin or whatever it was um, before I'd make a decision about whether or not I, I did like it or not. Um, usually the ones I liked, I knew I liked from the first bowl, but some of those ones I didn't care for so much. I, I just kind of finished them off before I uh, decided if I, I would buy them again or not. You know, for a young guy, that's a uh, that's a really mature answer, and I wish I had... I wish I had the patience and ability to uh, keep working through a, a tin of something that just didn't jump out at me. Yeah, I mean, part of it, too, was uh, I didn't want to waste the money. Yeah. Um, so, but, yeah, in, in general, I'm, uh, I'm pretty patient and pretty good at, like, suffering through something that I don't like um, with the hopes that maybe... Maybe I was wrong at the beginning, and I'll, I'll actually like it that time I'm done. It doesn't always work that way, but I'm willing to uh, to give it a try, nonetheless. Yeah, dang it, I spent this money on this 50-gram tin. I hate the tobacco, but I'm going to smoke all the way through it and enjoy it no matter what. Right. right. And at that time, I didn't, um, I didn't really know any other pipe smokers. So it's not like I, I had anybody to, to give it to. Um, after a while, I got some of my friends, uh, my enthusiasm for pipes, I was able to kind of rub, rub off on some of my friends. They started getting pipes. So I would give them some, some pipes that I'd made. And then uh, then I 
would, you know, kind of give stuff away a little bit more and not finish everything. But that first uh, probably year or two, I didn't, I didn't really know any other regular pipe smokers. So there was, you know, it was either just going to sit there or I was going to smoke it. So I figured I might as well smoke it. We're going to take a break right here. When we come back, we'll talk more pipe making with uh, Micah, and then we'll talk about the move to Nashville. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. Smokingpipes.com has been my family's tradition for over 10 years. My granddad enjoys his evening pipe on the front porch. My father prefers his in the study, and well, me, I like to hang outside the local coffee shop with a pipe in one hand and my smartphone in the other. The best selection is at SmokingPipes.com. They always have the exact pipe I'm looking for. Savinelli, Peterson, Dunhill, and great stuff from dozens of top artisans around the world. Plus, they have over 70 tobacco brands with 750 blends to choose from. Lighters, tampers, tobacco jars, yep, they have that too. But the best part about SmokingPipes.com is that it's easy to order from my computer, tablet, or even my smartphone. And if Granddad has trouble with technology, he can always call them at 1-888-366-0345. I heard that. Do you think I'm deaf? I'm the one who told you about SmokingPipes.com, and I had a smartphone before you. You kids today, blah, blah. SmokingPipes.com. Make it your family tradition. Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show, visiting with pipe maker Micah Redmond. Uh, so you said something before that was interesting, how you, you said you kind of go through phases of shapes that interest you or styles that interest you. And I've found as a uh, as a pipe collector smoker, I get interested in a shape or a design uh, I mean, how does that work for you as a pipe maker? You you want to figure out a shape or figure out a style, and you work on it, work on it, and then you get it, and then you kind of get something else that excites you. Um, yeah, I think I think it, it mostly works that way. Um, there and there are a lot of uh, ways in which that happens. Um, looking at other people's pipes, like there there are shapes that maybe I've never made before, and I'll. See somebody else's that I think is a really well done version of that and then I'll, I'll feel kind of inspired to, to try it myself um, and sometimes I'll do that with shapes that I, I don't even care for but it's more the learning the skills to make something different the challenge of trying to make something different and get out of my comfort zone um, that's definitely uh, a big part of it and that's a that's the thing that's helped me help me grow as a pipe maker over the years is sort of forcing myself to uh, to make some shapes that uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't normally do because if it were if it were up to me I'd probably only ever make like apples and tomatoes <laughs> with the occasional billiards but that that gets that gets kind of boring after a while and it's um, I don't want to limit limit myself. Um, in that way, because it is a creative enterprise, and, and keeping things open and allowing myself room to sort of explore new ideas and new shapes, I think, is really important. What was the hardest thing for you to get a handle on when you first started? Um, everything. <laughs> it was a. Uh, so when I got into to pipe making, I didn't have really any experience. Um, 
with woodworking or as a machinist or anything like that. So initially it was just kind of learning how to not, not break myself and break my tools. <laughs> um, and then once I sort of got that figured out, um, there's so many little detail things um, and pipes. And when you're trying to figure them all out at once, um, it can become a little overwhelming. So um, I got some advice from some other people. Um, I was I found a uh, pipe maker's forum pretty early on, uh, which is an invaluable resource, especially uh, for, for a new pipe maker. Um, and I, I tried to sort of focus in on certain aspects of it and try to tackle things like one at a time as much as I could. You can't get too focused on on minutia because then you you lose the whole and you might have a one little thing that's really good but everything else is a total mess. So it still looks like a total mess. Um, so figuring out kind of how to balance and that's still um, tricky sometimes, especially when working on a new shape or trying some techniques I'm not I'm not as familiar with or have don't have as much experience with trying to balance the the amount of like attention to detail you need to have but also keep a sort of bigger picture of the composition as a whole um, and keeping that balance and making sure you're not overdoing one thing or underdoing another um, that's a that probably took the longest to, to figure out for me is there a shape of pipe that still is kind of eluding you or gives you fits? Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, I haven't done a lot of um, pipes with panels. Um, I've done a couple, and they become a little a little maddening at a point because that that sort of desire for things to be as perfect as you can make them. Um, gets gets tricky with super sharp lines and like really geometric forms. So that's still a thing I, I kind of experiment with and play around with. Um, but it's still it's still difficult. I think I naturally tend toward sort of more organic and round shapes. Um, even though I really like a lot of geometric and like panelled shapes from other pipe makers, my 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 hands don't really want to work the way um, I want them to sometimes with that. So that's, that's still um, definitely a lot more difficult than, than some shapes for me. Um, but like anything else, I know if I kind of keep at it, I'll get it, I'll get it figured out and be able to do it well eventually. I mean, that, that's interesting because you, you'd think that making like a, you know, making just like a, a, a four square, you know, just a, a square panel billiard would be, easy but you get that line off by a couple of millimeters and I guess it can uh, start playing games with your eyes yes yeah and that's that's there's a lot of that that goes on with um, with pipe making um, I mean the sort of I guess for pipe makers classic example is like a straight beard if you don't count the bowl a few degrees forward it looks like it's leaning backwards toward the shank there are all these little things that you can do perfectly and the measurements are exactly right, but they don't look right when the, comp- like the whole composition is done because 
your eyes play tricks on you and they follow lines a certain way. You know, we all sort of, our, our eyes naturally kind of follow lines off to vanishing points, and if those don't kind of flow the right way, um, things things get pretty weird. And, yeah, a little bit off here, a little bit off there can make what's a really well-executed type technically is not as beautiful because there's something a little off about it. And uh, I find with, with, with panels and more geometric shapes, whether that be uh, like a classic panel pipe or something uh, more like modern asymmetrical sculptural piece, um, that, gets, that gets real tricky because those lines um, guide your eye a certain way. And if they're not just right, um, it becomes kind of dissonant, I guess, to, uh, to the viewer. It becomes uncomfortable to look at. Yes. Uh, what part of the pipe making process is your favorite? Um, I would say uh, shaping, um, especially since moving to Nashville. I used to, um, before moving to Nashville, I always uh, drilled first and then shaped. And then after moving to Nashville, I started shaping first and then freehand drilling. And uh, shaping now is is just a whole lot of fun. Um, and there's so much freedom to kind of be creative and to adjust on the fly. Um, it, it's made it a really, really fun process. I also really like uh, sort of finishing the point from where you're standing the pipe and then kind of making it shine and, and look pretty. I like that uh, that phase of it a lot, too. And what's your least favorite part of the process? Oh, probably the same as everyone else's. Um, STEM work. Yeah. Uh, partly because, I mean, when, you, when it goes well, it feels it's really gratifying. But you walk such a kind of... It's a, it's a tightrope walk much of the time, and you want it to be thin and comfortable. But in order to do that, you get uh, can sometimes get into an area where just a little bit too much or a little bit off here, and the whole thing is kind of is ruined and you have to start over. Um, so that's the, I find that part of it to be a bit more stressful. Um, but like anything, I know... I just keep doing it, and, you know, I do thousands of pipes for, for many, many years. It'll become just as easy as anything else, and then I'll be able to, you know, feel, feel good about that part and not experience quite the same level of, uh, of stress. Where do your pipes start out price-wise? Um, they start uh, around $300, so a little, a little less, a little more, depending on... Um, like adornments, things like that. So a black blast is going to start somewhere between two seventy-five and three twenty-five. So you know, it's got um, a ring or something fancy going on. Um, and then right now they're they're up into the six six hundred dollar range for like a light, smooth, really nice grain, no flaws. Um, depending on on materials too. Um, I use a bit of a, a vintage Bakelite for stems 
that tends to move the price up a little bit because it's uh, it's expensive and hard to get and not something I can just uh, order online whenever I want to get more of it. And you're part-time pipe making right now. We'll talk about that in a minute. But how many pipes a year do you think you'll be making? Um, that's a that's a great question, and uh, that's a that's a thing I need to, I need to figure out. I would guess uh, probably somewhere in the the fifty range. Um, I would like to get that up closer to a hundred. Um. But that's, a, like I said, because it's a part-time thing, uh, time management is important and tricky, and uh, I need to figure that out so I can get those, those production numbers up a bit. Yeah, and you also need to have a life outside of pipe making because uh, you moved to Nashville a year ago, and uh, tell us what your full-time job is. Um, so full-time, um, I work for Briarworks International. Um doing a number of things, primarily as one of the pipe finishers, um, but there's also little uh, other other things that I, I do. I'm involved with um, some website stuff, and, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're kind of a lean, uh, lean and mean company, so most of us do a few different things, um, but I w- initially was hired on uh, to finish uh, factory pipes. So I moved to Nashville from Jacksonville to do that because a job where I get to work on pipes all day seems like a pretty uh, pretty cool thing to do. Um, and I'm I'm really glad I did it. I uh, enjoy working for Briarworks a lot, and I work with some really really great folks and uh, enjoy the work. Hey, so you get to hang out all day making pipes and uh, working with Todd Johnson and Pete. Prevost, and then you get to go home and make your own pipes. Um, yeah, and actually, we uh, um, there's five of us there at the shop that all all make handmade pipes. So Todd and Pete, and then uh, Bill Schlosky and Sam Adebayo also work there, and we uh, we actually um, work in the the shop there, Robert. So we have a handmade shop set up that we all share, um, which is was pretty great because we get some access to some, some tools and equipment that would be hard to set up a, in like a home shop. Um, but then working with those guys, we, uh, the opportunity to learn from really talented, ex- experienced pipe makers and then kind of, we kind of all feed off of each other and, and there's a lot of encouragement and uh, just in general that that environment, I find, has been really, really good for um, not only the quality of my work, but sort of the, the enjoyment I take in it. And uh, knowing those guys the way I do, I would imagine it's a pretty lively uh, atmosphere to be around. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we have a good time. Um, it's uh, That's that's part of the my favorite thing, actually, about working at Briarworks is it's a a crew of guys that are all super intelligent, super witty, they're fun. Um, it's just, there's some, it's always interesting conversation. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't get boring, that's for sure. (laughs) 
Normally I would pick on Todd, but I'll, I'll give him a pass. But I will ask you, though, does Pete wear his hat while he's in the shop, too? Um, yeah, most of the time. Um, Pete, Pete is definitely a hat guy. I, uh, <laughs> I probably count on one hand and another time to see him without a hat on him, so... So to see some of Micah's work, it's Micah Redmond, M-I-C-A-H-R-E-D-M-O-N-D.com. Uh, you've got a couple of retailers out there, and there's links on the on your website to it, and then you can go to Briarworks International and see what Micah's doing over there. Um, now for the worst part of the show, we'll wrap this up with the fast five final questions. No right answer, no wrong answer, just whatever comes to your mind. Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. What is your favorite pipe? Oh, goodness. I don't know if I can answer that one. Next question. <laughs> this is where you say, well, the one that Todd Johnson made for me, of course. Oh, well... Yeah, that made one specifically for me, yeah, but I'm working on that. Oh, okay. All right, what is your favorite tobacco? Oh, see, these are all tricky questions. I don't like to pick favorites. Um, kind of depends on the day of the week. My my favorite lately has probably been Jermaine's Brown Flake. Um, I was uh, gifted a tin of that recently. Um, I hadn't had it before, and I've been enjoying that very much. What is your favorite drink? Oh, goodness. That's another one of those things. Tonight, it might be a stout. Tomorrow, it might be an IPA. Today after that, it might be bourbon. Who knows? <laughs> just, just whatever you do, you're, you're, you're going to eventually settle down with one woman. Uh, when it's time to relax, do you prefer a book, a movie, or music? Um, I would probably say a book, but I I also like the combination of a book and, and the right kind of music, some sort of instrumental, easygoing music that kind of pairs up with the, the, the a book in the right way is, is, probably, is probably the best combo, I think. And the final question... Do you have any uh, do you have a particularly favorite pipe smoking related memory? You know, there's there's so many um, at this point. Um, specific memory, uh, I don't know, but I, I've got to spend a lot of time with other pipe makers in their shops, and then um, I always look forward to pipe shows because there's always some kind of silliness afoot, and get to see get to see friends and and really people that have become family. Um, so it's it's a constant uh, kind of memory making thing, just like any other uh, group of friends or family. Uh, have uh, have you and Pete gotten a chance to pull out your guitars and uh, jam together? Um, we have not done that, uh, but uh, Sam Sam is also a musician, so we talk about it a lot, but we haven't yet done it. So, so we could have the yeah, Briar. Everybody's, everybody's busy. We could have the Briarworks International Band at uh, next year's Chicago Pipe Show. Yeah, it's, it's, it would be a hoot. <laughs> Micah, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you. 
We'll be back in just a minute. Craftsmanship, history, tradition. These are the hallmarks of all quality products. From the finest wines bottled in France to the most highly engineered automobiles manufactured in Germany, Denmark has been the one country in the world where craftsmanship, history and tradition have for centuries created the finest pipe tobaccos in the world. Since 1887, the Halberg family have led the pipe tobacco industry through their ownership of Mac Baron Tobacco Company and they continue to create the most sought-after blends in the world today, just as they did over 100 years ago. In keeping with their long history of providing the world with the best tobacco on earth, Mac Barron is proud to announce their newest creation, Modern Virginia, as a loose cut version and a flake version. Bright and dark, rich Virginia tobaccos have been combined with just a hint of burley for strength in this soft and smooth smoke with delicious fruit undertones. As the world leader in flake tobacco production, Mac Barron is sure that this blend will appeal to the true connoisseurs of traditional Virginia flake tobacco, as well as those who like their tobaccos on the sweeter side. Enjoy the culmination of centuries of experience by picking up a tin of Modern Virginia from Mac Barron Tobacco Company. Available at fine tobacconists everywhere. This is Internet Radio. Welcome back. All right. Uh, make sure to check out Micah's Pipes and uh, see everything that's going on at uh, Briar Works online or at your favorite retailer. Uh, I was sitting there thinking while I was talking to Micah. I wonder if the uh, I wonder if the archaeologist found any old cans of uh, Balkan Sobrani seven five nine out there in Utah. I mean, maybe that would be uh, Balkan Sobrani number two from that far back. Anyway, all right. For music, we uh, got an email from Dino about uh, Oscar Peterson's birthday. So this one uh, is not what he sent along, but this is the Oscar Peterson trio doing. Uh, Kind of apropos for what we're going through right now. Uh, things ain't what they used to be.
think about it if things are what they used to be it would be like uh, groundhog day all over again what's this a letter for me in the mailbag a couple of things to get through uh one is yaddy 306 posted on the forums uh he says i was listening to a bunch of the radio shows the other day and was struck by brian levine's warning that you had to be of legal smoking age to listen to the show now, I understand that this is completely, this is a completely unforceable, unenforceable rule, but it got me thinking. Whose rule is it anyways? Is it iTunes? Because I don't use iTunes. Also, can I listen to the podcast if my kids are around, or do I need to wear headphones? Why can my kids not listen to the podcast, but they can watch someone smoke on TV or in movies? What about beer commercials on TV? Why the double standard that kids can be exposed to beer commercials but not need to be 18 plus to listen to a pipe smoking podcast. Sort of rhetorical questions, although I'd like to know why Brian Levine needs to warn us that we have that we have to be of smoking age. Well, let me go into this for a little bit here. Uh, one, we were just we were advised early on that we should put a little bit of a warning in every third or fourth show stating that uh, you know that you must be of smoking age. 
and it was just as a precautionary thing. Of course, we can't tell who's listening to what or watching what. Uh, it's not iTunes. It was just us. Uh, yeah, and, you know, in some nanny states, they don't want you smoking in a car where there are minors inside the car with you. So they're interested in what you're doing and what you're doing around kids. Um, why can, uh, you know, now all movies that feature non-historical smoking prominently, they must be rated R because that's an adult activity. And why can't beer, uh, why can people consume beer in a PG movie? Why can we see beer commercials? Well, it's a long story that I think goes all the way back to the unions and the battle against smoking. Uh, big tobacco companies in the United States are based in Virginia and North Carolina. Big beer companies in the United States are based in Missouri and Wisconsin. Uh, Missouri and Wisconsin sometimes would be considered blue-collar democratic states, especially back in the 70s and 80s, and those are union states. Democrats don't want to upset union members. Uh, the South, Virginia, North Carolina, non-union, traditionally more conservative states, eh, it's okay for Democrats to upset them. So that's why I think you saw such a crackdown on drinking in the, uh, on smoking and the ban on smoking commercials or tobacco commercials and why we can still see beer and fruity tutti vodkas advertised on TV right in prime time. All right. Sort of a rhetorical answer. Um, yeah, no real way we can stop you. Let your kids listen. It's up to you. All right. Uh, Casey ghost says nice wrap up of the FDA situation. Maybe it will bring a few of my friends in from the ledge. Hopefully the lawsuits that have been initiated will bear fruit as well. It is very bad for a business if a department that hates you so much is put in charge of your fate. Uh, interesting story on Myelin Tobacconist. I never su suspected it was pronounced that way. It is surprising that a business could survive 100 plus years and be located on the same street within a block or two. Yeah, quite a bit of history. Uh, Dino says... Like Dan, I thought the shop was named after the Italian city. Uh, David's story was most interesting. There are very few shops in America with such a long history. Here in Chicago, we have the oldest still running, Yvonne Reese. That's right, it's E-E-V-A-H-N, that's how you pronounce it. Yvonne Reese. Uh, it's been within a few blocks of the present location for nearly 160 years. Here's a show idea. Conversations with folk who can tell these historic brick-and-mortar shops, such as Rees, Demuth, Peretti's, Faders, and the like. Thanks again for an entertaining show. Uh, we did have Chuck Levy on a while back. We've had uh, Stephen Willett from Peretti's on and talked about that. Working on Faders, uh, working on Demuth. That would be fun. Also, uh, Paul's Pipe Shop up in Flint, Michigan. All right. Uh, Ten days from now. 10, 12 days from now, the NASPC Columbus Pipe Show and Swap in Dublin, Ohio. I will be there. Come find me. Search me out. Say hello. Uh, we can do selfies together or uh, any of that fun stuff. No, I will not autograph your iPod. Uh, permanent markers on iPods don't work out too well, but do make sure and come by and see us. The show starts Friday evening at uh, 5 p.m. and goes till uh, 9 o'clock on Friday night. And then 
all day Saturday, 9 to 5. Bring money for their raffles, too, because uh, the door prize raffles is how they raise most of their money, and you got some really cool stuff in there. All right, in just a minute, rant time is next. Italians have always been known for their aesthetic passion. It's their birthright, their legacy. And just like Savinelli, it continues to grow and evolve. It is ever-changing. Milan, 1876. Achille Savinelli set out to change the way the world viewed smoking pipes, opening one of the world's first specialist tobacco shops. From one small storefront to a factory that delivered handmade pipes all over the world, the legacy he forged became one filled with success and prestige. Achilles' dream is carried on today by his family, who continues the Savinelli legacy. Each year, Savinelli debuts a series of new, forward-thinking designs, comprised of quality-crafted pipes shaped from some of the best briar in the world. Behind every beautiful object, there's a story. Start your own chapter. Visit your local tobacconist or premium online dealer today. Postal Service's slogan, neither rain nor sleet nor snow nor dark of night shall stop me, blah, 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 blah. Well, remember that, where they would always make sure and get their rounds and deliver and do all that stuff? Well, apparently that's gone all out the window completely in the last three to five years, because uh, in particular, of the last six months, well, we've been having a lot of mail that has uh, disappeared or gone missing. And yes, with the estates of my relatives, I've been dealing with a lot of mail back and forth, handwritten envelopes and stuff, and we've had a lot of things just kind of disappear, or we had a change in mail carrier for our area, and that meant that we had a substitute carrier, and we'd go two days without any mail coming in here, and just all kinds of problems. So finally, I cornered, I cornered the postmaster of our local post office, And she looked me right in the eye and she said, Yeah, we're having a hard time getting people that are willing to work in the heat of the summer and drive and do the deliveries. And then the problem with the handwritten envelopes is, well, the computers can't read them, so they have to be sorted by hand, and I guess they're just getting lost. Not only are they just getting lost, three separate times I've had checks that I've mailed out to people go missing completely, had to turn around and put a stop payment on the check, reissue the, rewrite the check, and mail it with a priority mail envelope so that it's digitally tracked and insured. Now, that's a cost of about, oh, $35 each time that happens because the post office is now, all their sorting is completely computerized unless you happen to uh, get a handwritten one and it's got to be pulled off to the side and you get somebody who's willing to follow through with it. So, rain nor sleet nor snow? Nope, all gone. Email has uh, ended that, probably. 
All right. Uh, hey, listen, remember, you must be of legal smoking age wherever you are to listen to the show, or at least we highly suggest that. While you're on iTunes, please leave us a rating or review. Comments are wonderful. If you have any questions or comments, you can either email me, Brian, at PipesMagazine.com or post them on the Pipes Magazine radio show page right on PipesMagazine.com. So, uh, thank you all for tuning in. Thank you to Micah for joining me. And until next time. Sing a song and think about sunny weather. Happy trails to the world's oldest living freshman and the walking epitome of the decline of modern education.